Well, let's read the Word of God from Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Well, I think you all know this children's story about the emperor's new clothes. It's a bit corny, really. This guy comes up with a yarn that he can make a beautiful set of clothes for the king using invisible cloth and invisible thread. The intelligence of the king is a bit dodgy in the story, though probably true to life, knowing royalty. But then the story goes on to tell us that when the king eventually gets a pair of these desirable, invisible clothes, and parades around the court. Everybody on that occasion is somewhat taken aback. Uh, as he parades around, everybody's convinced themselves, of course, that the king is right. After all, kings know, and ordinary people don't. And the king is really pleased with his new set of clothes. And although they can't see them, they, they applaud him, and they say how lovely they look, and how well cut they are, and how remarkable that he should be able to go around wearing these <laughs> invisible clothes. And by the way, how did this ever become a children's story in, in the first place? 
But not everybody, not everybody is so convinced about the king's sartorial elegance. There's a little child. And that's the little child that sees things as they really are. And in a hushed audience chamber, with everybody ooing and eyeing at these invisible clothes, one little voice is heard to say, the king is naked. And the place presumably dissolves into laughter. Well, having said that, the whole story untangles at that point. If Isaiah of Jerusalem had known that story, he would have approved of me using it as an opening illustration this morning. <laughs> I, I'm in touch with him. And he, he certainly would have approved. Because one of his great arguments, you see, for against idolatry, and one of, one of Isaiah's uh, goals in writing this great book is that idolatry is an invisible thing. It's, it's, it's empty. It doesn't exist. The gods that are captured in the idols don't really exist at all. And one of the things that Isaiah is saying to the people of his own day and to our day is this. It doesn't matter how sophisticated we are. No matter that we've never seen or bowed down to an actual physical idol of wood or stone or precious metal. One of the things Isaiah teaches us is that idolatry is in fact endemic in human life. We do it all the time. And he wants us to know that idolatry, like the emperor's new clothes, in the end represents nothing, nothing at all. No matter how real and tangible they may appear to our imagination or to our eyes, idols are nothing compared to the invisible God that the Bible describes. And he also wants us to know uh, that these idols will fail. Now, he's been talking a lot about idolatry. This is really is the last bit of teaching in the whole of the book uh, when he focuses on idolatry. And therefore, I'm, I'm picking up this morning and hoping to wind up the whole talk about idolatry with this sermon. Although, I'm not going to make any promises. But here is the first time in the entire book when Isaiah actually names the names of two of the Babylonian gods, well-known Babylonian gods, Bel, or which is Baal or Baal in Canaan, in Canaan, represents the chief god, sometimes known as Marduk. And Nebo, which means the speaker, it was the patron saint of wisdom and writing and was his son-in-law or son, depending on what literature you read. And here in this chapter, these two gods are identified. And they're ridiculed, really, by the prophet. You'll notice that the prophets did not hesitate to ridicule idolatry and make fun of it because, frankly, it was a big joke. As far as they were concerned, there's nothing to it. So the best thing is irony and humor in order to deflate the idolatry that was rampant in the nations round about Israel. That's what he's doing here in verse 2. They stoop or cower. They bow or are crouched down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. He's describing some animals who are carrying off these gods away from Babylon, away into captivity. And he's saying, that they can't help the animals that are carrying them. They're utterly dependent on the people who are moving them because they have no power in and of 
themselves. In fact, later on, he, he makes, it makes it very clear what he's doing in verse 6 and 7. Those who lavish gold from the purse, weigh silver in the scale, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bring in the gold, they give him the gold, he makes it into a god. They lift it onto their shoulders, they carry it, they put it in its place, they cry out to it, they bow down to it, they worship it. And Isaiah says, think about that for a moment. It is laugh-out-loudable. It is ridiculous. It is foolishness. And that is the nature of idolatry. Now, the Bible says a lot about idolatry and the nature of idolatry. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 puts it like this, that people claiming to be wise became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, uh, and so forth. In other words, the heart of idolatry is this act of foolishness by which we transcribe things that are eternal and put them into a material or physical shape. Now, in, in Israel, right from the very beginning, when God constituted them a nation, way back in the book of Genesis, the second book of the Bible, He gave them the Ten Commandments. And the first two commandments address the matter of idolatry. Here's what we read in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And what those commandments are saying is true religion starts with the God who has revealed himself to Israel, and we would add, to Israel and in Christ. And it warns us against both idolatry and idols that are the product of idolatry. Now, we've been looking at idolatry as we've gone through Isaiah. One way to describe idolatry is that it is an alternative interpretation of reality. So you think of uh, Baal, for example, who was the Canaanite god. He was the weather god, and he was the god of, he was god of the weather and the womb. He, he gave good pr- uh, pro- productivity when it comes to rain and, and sending rain on the earth in order to water the land, and he gave productivity in the womb so that people had children and so on. So he was the god of the weather and of the harvest and of uh, children and so forth. And they gave him the credit for all of those things. In the Bible, that's described, that would be described as an alternative explanation of reality. It's an alternative to the the teaching that God is the creator and that God is the preserver and the sustainer of all life here on this planet. Similarly, if if you uh, believe that if you're someone who lives for more, more of what can be had materially, if, if that's what you live for, not just as that, if that, that's what you enjoy, but if you live for houses and goods and possessions and ornaments and money and status and family and marriage and success, then that thing may be a God to you, maybe the highest thing, the, the priority thing in your life. 
Because let me for a moment define what a false god is. A false god is anything or anyone who displaces the supremacy, the primacy, and the ultimacy of the revealed God of Scripture. One of the great things about living in America is you can make words up. Ultimacy is a made-up word. It's not in the dictionary. But you can do that because it rhymes with primacy and supremacy, okay? Uh, and, and I just like things that rhyme. And I thought that was as good as anything. I, I'll, exp- I'll just use my American freedom uh, to, to create that. So now that I've congratulated myself uh, on doing that, let me return you to those three words because they do summarize what a false god is. Anything that displaces or supplants the primacy and the supremacy and the ultimacy of God, the God who has revealed himself to Israel and in Christ, is a false God. So Canaan, Canaan's Baal worship was a false worship. The worship of Molech, one of the other gods of the region, was a false worship. The worshipers of Baal, uh, we know from Scripture and archaeology, worship of Baal was a rampage of gluttony and drunkenness and ritual prostitution. The worship of Molech involved the sacrifice of children and young women to the gods, the throwing them into the fire and so on. And the equivalents in our day are where we might look for, our, for supremacy, ultimacy, and primacy in our lives given to the things of this life, uh, pleasure, possessions, position, which the Bible defines as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lo- idolatry has to do to, with loyalty. In the end, it comes down to whom or where does my heart's loyalty lie? Jesus is addressing idolatry when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Idolatry has to do with the primacy of God, the ultimacy of God, and the supremacy of God in my heart. So what is an idol then? Well, an idol is a representation of God. It doesn't become the God, although the idolater believes that God is in the idol, but he also believes that God is not in the idol. So he believes that God exists standalone, but that he also exists in the idol, the thing that he has made. So idolatry is a bit more nuanced, really, than we often describe it as being. And there's much that is written in the Bible about idolatry. And I think we need to understand that idolatry, that is the making of a graven image, begins with the imagination. All idolatry begins with the imagination. How should we humans form thoughts about God? Actually, when you read what the Bible has to say about God, we discover that the God who is there is greater than our imagination, greater than we can grasp. And the Bible would warn us against trusting anybody who says that they can imagine what God 
is like. The reason for that is that we are fallen, sinful human beings. That our imagination has as its default setting the inclination to scale God down to our size. We diminish Him. When sin entered the world, Satan promised Eve, you will be like God. Well, she couldn't be like God. She was a created thing. But you see, he's brought God down so that a created person like Eve can be like God. He has diminished God. The first commandment forbids worshiping many gods. But the second commandment forbids worshiping the true God in our own terms. As we imagine him to be, or as we would prefer Him to be. You've maybe heard people say to you, uh, I like to think of God, I like to think of God as being kind, not harsh, generous, not grasping. I like to think of God perhaps overlooking a lot of the things that we generally criticize. I like to think that God would, uh, would turn a blind eye to a lot of the things that are going on in the world, just because I like to think that God is only love. Have you ever heard anybody speak like that or in some way like that? Whenever anybody says to you, this is how I like to think of God, you should never trust them. Never trust them. Because an imagined God will always be a figment of our imagination. You see, a metal or material image of God starts with a mental image of God. And a mental image of God is idolatry because you are creating something in your imagination that actually does not exist. The God of the Bible does not let us do that. He does not let us do that. Let me explain why. In, in the Bible, the idea of the church is the assembly of God's people. So in Deuteronomy, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 4, and chapter 9, verse 10, talks about the day of the church. The, the word church there in the Greek, ecclesia, is used. It's the day of the assembly, the gathering together of Israel to God. Israel gathered to God at Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai to hear the Word of God. They came to hear something, not see something. When Moses gathered Israel, you know, to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, he told them to stay there. Don't do anything. Just stay there and wait until I come down and speak to you the words that the Lord will give to me. <clears throat> And so they were hanging around down there, and Moses was up in the mountain receiving the word of God, and he heard a commotion down at the base of the mountain. What was the commotion? He comes down to see, and what has happened is this. They were all very happy to come and worship the invisible God who was meeting with Moses on top of the mountain, but they found it hard to worship an invisible God, so they got all their gold, and, and they threw it all into the pot, and they, they created this golden calf, and they worshipped the God who was on the mountain, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was giving them the law, they worshiped that God, but they used what they imagined and what they made 
in order to be an aid to their worship. Because what were they saying to Moses? They were saying to Moses, we can't worship something without some help. We need a visual aid. We need something that will enable us to think about God. That's what they were saying. And you may remember what Moses did when he came down from the mountain. He made it very clear that, in fact, God will not let us worship as we please. And uh, they were worshiping the right God in the wrong way. In the early days of the church, you know, in the first few hundred years of the church, the church met in homes, and only in the fourth century did they begin to get buildings. And they didn't really know what to do with the buildings. They'd been meeting in homes for hundreds of years, and, and they'd, been, they'd been illegal. And now they're legal. Not only are they illegal, but the authorities are on their, their side. And uh, uh, the, the people of Rome and, and elsewhere in the empire would come to these buildings that were being built for the church, and they would come in and there would be nothing there. Nothing. They would just be bare buildings. A bunch of people. Uh, there's a church, San Clemente, near St. John's Lateran in Rome, and if you go there and go down to the second level, you see what one of those fourth century churches looked like. And it was empty, except for a space in the middle that was the size of Clement's living room in the sub-basement where they'd been meeting for years. <laughs> it was just the size of their congregation. It was there in the middle. People came in. They looked at these people meeting. They listened to them as they preached. And uh, they went away again. And over time, as the church, now legal, tried to reach its pagan neighbors, they understood that the people were used to going to pagan temples. They were used to theater and drama. They were used to seeing things that helped them to think about the gods that they were worshiping. And over hundreds of years, you see, what happened was they, the church adopted. They adopted, for example, the old pagan, Roman pagan idea of the Madonna and child, pictures all over the place of the goddess and her child, and they adopted those, and they baptized it in Christian language. And this was Mary and the baby. And the, the, the Romans were used to a pantheon of gods. And so they introduced the saints as a pantheon of uh, heavenly beings, people who were in heaven and were able to plead their case, the case with God for you. These aids to worship over time took on a life of their own and diverted people's attention from the glory of God. Now, why is God against that? Well, in Exodus, we're told why. It's because he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God who wants total loyalty from his people. He's a just God who will give his enemies what they choose and deserve ultimately. And he's a justifying God who gives steadfast love, who shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. The God of the Bible is a jealous God. He wants your total loyalty. He doesn't want that loyalty shared with anybody else or anything else. When the Apostle John, for example, is writing a little letter to Christians with 105 verses in it in our Bible, the very last words of that little letter are these, written to the people of God, telling them how to live for God in the world. He says, beloved children, he woos them 
Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't be diverted into an, a cul-de-sac of following idols. And when we talk about idols then, we're talking first of all about making something in our minds. It goes to the, it goes to the mind and then to the heart, the idols of our heart. We're told in that first great commandment, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The inwardness of true religion, the invisibility of God. When God calls His people to meet with Him, the expectation of the people in Scripture is they are coming to hear Him, to hear from Him, not to see Him. Not to see anything that represents Him, but to hear from Him, to hear from heaven from Him. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when God is there, He is there to be heard. He created us to hear Him with the promise that one day we shall see Him face to face in Christ. That's the that's why we walk by faith and not by sight. So that's the background to these verses we're reading here because what, what Isaiah is now spelling out to these people that he's writing to is, here's the absurdity of idolatry. At the end of the day, Bel and Nebu, uh, who gave their names to people like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, leaders of Babylon, these gods who used to parade in magnificence through the streets of Babylon will one day, he says, be carted off along with the people into captivity. And when Isaiah is talking about that, he's not here putting it in the context of Cyrus the Persian, whom he's just introduced and said that's 150 years' time from when Isaiah is speaking, I, Cyrus the Persian is going to arise, and he names him so that you know that, that God has inspired him and that this is the Word of God. And he says, Cyrus the Persian will come, will invade Babylon, and will take over. Well, when Cyrus came, Cyrus just adopted all the Babylonian gods because he was a wise politician. He didn't want to throw them out. He wanted to keep everybody on his side, so he adopted them as well. So this prophecy is for something beyond that. Here's Isaiah giving a prophecy of something that will happen beyond Cyrus and beyond the fall of Babylon. In the far future, these gods will vanish. They will disappear. And from our vantage point, that prophecy has been fulfilled. But Isaiah is rubbing it in. He's saying the gods of the nations cannot do anything for you. They cannot save themselves. They cannot help themselves. They cannot carry themselves. They, they are nothing. Somebody has to make them. Somebody has to lift them up. Somebody has to hammer a nail in its place to hold them in position. And in the end, somebody is going to snatch it and take it away. These manufactured idols are nothing in the end. Well, in verses 3 to 7, we're taken to the heart of the matter. God is talking to His own people. Because His own people, you see, had, had uh, been involved in this whole process 
of idolatry over the years. And what he says to his own people here is this. There are only two kinds of religion in the world. A religion of works and a religion of grace. Only two kinds of religion. One religion, you make your own image of God. You create your own image of God. You create it in your mind, and then you make something to, rep- to, to capture what you've got in your head. Whatever way you look at it, in that religion, your effort is required. Your effort is required. That's a religion of works. Or there is a religion of grace. That is, it's all done on God's side. And you can see verses 1 and 2 are emphasizing what people have to do in idolatry. They have to carry them. They have to bear them as burdens. They have to do all the work. But in true religion, as God speaks to his own people in verses 3 and 4, do you notice what he says to them? Listen to me, house of Jacob, the remnant, the believing remnant of the house of Israel, those who are believers. You have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even up to old age. I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. There's a repetition of the words of verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, people have to do the bearing, the carrying, and the saving of the idol. Here, the first person pronoun here refers to God, what God does for us. I will bear, I have made, I will carry, I will bear. It is He who does the work, not we. It is God who takes the initiative. It is God who does the business. And what Isaiah is doing here is picking up picture language that is used in the Old Testament scriptures of a father carrying his child, Deuteronomy 1, of a shepherd carrying a lamb in Psalm 28, or of an eagle carrying its young from Exodus 19. God does the carrying. And this God who does the carrying transcends space and time and history. You would expect, for example, that the father would grow old as the child grows up. But God says to his people, that doesn't happen here. I will carry you to great old age. I will carry you all the way. I don't grow old. You do. And so I will carry you to great old age. I will always be there for you. I will always be sustaining you. I will always be upholding you and carrying my people. Do you see how he, he emphasizes his power in this business? Because he is the maker, ultimately. He is the creator of all things. And he will save his people. He'll use Cyrus, his interim Messiah, Cyrus the Persian, a pagan man himself. He'll use him to get the people back to Jerusalem and to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah there. Verse 5 tells us the reason why people would even think of imagining a God made in their own, to their own imagination and in their own image is that they have such a low view of who God is. Listen to him in verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me uh, that we may be alike? God is saying to them, I'm incom- incomparable. There is nothing that you can ever imagine that comes anywhere near what I am. You think about the God who made everything. He is everything there is. This is the universe. It comprises all energy, all mass, 
everything that has ever been made. Here it is. And everything else is God. He doesn't need anything. He is not dependent on anything. The universe is depending on his willing it to exist at every minute, in every second. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? Or compare me that we may be alike? Your mental images, your metal images are products of human ingenuity and creativity, but they are man-made. And they re- therefore they represent a religion of works. You have to do the work. You have to do the imagining. You have to do the making. But the religion of the Bible is a religion of grace. God does the work. God makes us if we can't make ourselves. God forms us in the womb. We can't form ourselves there. God produces us from the womb. God sustains our life. God saves us by His grace. It's all of God, and it's all of grace, and it's all free, and it's all for those who believe. Now, the people of God must decide whether they're going to believe this or not. So, from verse 8 to 13, God's language is strong. He's talking to his own people. You know, in this book, one of, one of the charges that has gone through this book is a charge by God against his own people, his own people. Right from chapter 1, verse 2, children I have reared and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. And he calls them that here in verse 12. He says, you are far from righteousness. Because God's people then and now, the big question is whether we will believe God. Uh, Let me again fill you in in the background. Through Isaiah, God has given a promise. First of all, he's predicted they're going to be saved from the Assyrians, that they will be overwhelmed by the Babylonians, that they'll be taken into captivity, and that Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Then he's promised them that they will get back to Jerusalem. But then he's given them a a real upset by telling them that the person who will make it possible for them to get back to Jerusalem is this pagan idolater called Cyrus, who's named him, from Persia that was a nothing at that stage in the game. And what really offends, what really will offend some of the people that God is sending Isaiah to is the idea that God would ever use a pagan king to get God's people back to God's city, Jerusalem. By the way, that's the way it worked out in history. But Isaiah's telling them what's going to happen over 150 years before it happens. And so here, Isaiah's speaking to the people who'll be there and read this in that time. And he's saying to them, God is saying to them, Remember that I said this is the way it was going to be. Remember I gave these great promises. Remember that I made these great predictions. Remember that Isaiah had these logged and uh, notarized and put in a public place so that people knew that the prophet was a prophet of God and that everything he said would come true absolutely 100% true. Remember, you can go check it out for yourself. The children of Israel, the people of Judah, they, they learned this lesson. They learned that God was the only God there is because he could keep his word. He would keep his word. 
But that didn't mean they were happy with it. They weren't happy with it. They, really, they, weren't, they didn't hear the bit, you're going to get, you know, your, your future descendants are going to get back to Jerusalem. That would be a good thing. They didn't hear the good thing. They were thinking, and God's going to use Cyrus to do this. That's, that's, that's not kosher. It's not a good thing. And so God's challenging them here. And he, and he says to them, the answer to unbelief is to remember. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me. Remember. Remember the work of creation. I made everything. Remember the flood. When I sent a flood to wipe out the earth. Remember the exodus. When I brought out over a million of you from your bondage in Egypt and led you across the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember the conquest of Israel. Remember the judges that ruled you, the kings, the prophets. Remember. And we would say from our perspective that God would say to us this morning, and remember what I did for you in Jesus Christ. God says to them, remember that. And remember that I am God and there is none like me. Why is there none like him? Look at verse 10. Because he declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. That he has said, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. That's this man Cyrus, the Persian. The man of my counsel from a far country. For I have spoken and I will do do it. I have purposed and I will bring it to pass. There's God's word to the people. He's saying to us as he said to the children of Israel, look, is there a reason for being monotheistic rather than being idolatrous? He's speaking to Judah and to Jerusalem and to Israel who had always mixed this thing up right from that time they were delivered from Egypt and Moses was on that mountain receiving the word of God. And they were down below making their golden calf. From that very day they had gone on to do that. They'd always come to worship and they thought to themselves, we don't just want to come and hear, we want to come and see as well as hear. We don't just want to come to church and listen to God speak to us from his word. We want to have visual aids that help us, that spark our imagination so that we can imagine Something about God. God comes to them through Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, but particularly Isaiah, and says, let me put it in clear categorical terms. I'm going to tell you, the Assyrians will invade, but they won't hit Jerusalem. The Babylonians will come and they'll destroy Jerusalem, the temple, and take you all into exile. The Persians will come and they will bring you back to Jerusalem under a man called Cyrus. Who else? can tell you that hundreds of years before it happens. Ask Bel or Nabu or Marduk or Baal or any of those idol gods. Just ask them to say anything actually. Not only can they not say anything, but they cannot predict the future. None of them will. And Israel comes to believe that God is the only God. Isaiah and these prophecies cure Israel of its idolatry. So that when they come back from exile, they become and they remain to this day a monotheistic, exclusively monotheistic people. 
God says, you learn that when I say something, I keep my word. I accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And the last two verses here are a call to respond to this truth. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. That's how we find ourselves. We find ourselves distant from God. We find ourselves far from righteousness. Where can righteousness be found? That is the right, the right. It can be found where? Only in God. I bring near my righteousness. I bring near my salvation. I will put salvation in Zion, the buzzword for the people of God, for Israel my glory. Now, these verses then bring us face to face with the claims of the Bible to be the revelation of a uniquely revealing God who has spoken directly and unmistakably. They put before us two kinds of religion. In fact, I would say that here in Philadelphia on this day, you are being confronted with two kinds of religion. A religion of human effort, of toil and effort and struggle and angst and worry and a lack of assurance and wrestling with guilt and wondering what the end will be. That's one kind of religion. It's a religion of grace plus works. A religion in which you have to do all the heavy lifting. And another religion that is a religion of grace. A religion of a God who does the carrying and the hearing and the answering and the seeing and the saving. And this passage emphasizes that this burden-bearing God knows about un, our unworthiness. He recognizes that. You are far from righteousness. But he doesn't say measure up. He says this, I bring near my righteousness. Today, you, you may be here. Today, I don't know whether you've slipped in here. And, and you're one of these people, you take your religion seriously. That's why you're in Philadelphia today. You take it seriously. You want to do everything you can to ensure that grace, like a river, is pointed in your direction so that it will wash over you. You want to do everything you can to be in the right place on the right day so that you may receive a blessing from God. And that's a good thing and a good desire. But you know, too, that often you are racked with a sense of your unworthiness, a meritless lack of deserving. And that's because all of us, by nature, are rebels. We are, by nature, far from righteousness. Well, listen to what God says to you this morning. You don't have to imagine this. It's written in your Bible. 
You don't have to dream this up or think, I think God is like this. Here's what God himself says through his prophet to you. I bring my righteousness. It is not far off. In other words, what God is saying to you is this. Forget about your righteousness. You don't have any. Forget about your worthiness. You don't have any. But think about my righteousness. I bring it near. I bring my salvation near. I bring it near to those who believe, to those who are in Zion, to those who trust me, to those who believe me. In the words of Richard Ken, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that on this day, a great day in which great words will be read from Scripture, great confessions made and creeds recited that contain great godly and good truth to large numbers of people in this city. Our prayer is that many would see that a religion of trying is vain and a religion of trusting is what saves. That we have to choose between me having to carry my God by doing all that is necessary to make it fine with him is nothing compared to religion the religion of the Bible, in which it's God who carries me. Pray, Lord, today that you'd give us the faith to trust you, to rest in you. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.